So I'm not afraid of being cancelled. And yes, there will be people that will come with very robust arguments. And I'm okay to say I'm wrong. And I'm okay to have a bit of a difference around that. But I'm not okay, or I'm not afraid to speak truth to power in something that I truly and honestly believe in and and, and realise that it can benefit as a whole. So if people want to cancel me, I'm, I'm happy for them and their mum, but no, I'm, I'm going to go and say, my, I'm going to speak my truth anyway. Can we agree that leadership isn't based on title or position? I have created this podcast to talk to everyday people who lead in extraordinary ways in their everyday lives, both professionally and personally, in the hope that it will inspire everyday people like you and me to realize we are everyday leaders. Welcome to Everyday Leadership. On today's episode of Everyday Leadership, I have the pleasure of sitting down with Mr. David McQueen as we delve into having uncomfortable conversations about race and inequality, but doing it from a place of love. We talk about building and sustaining a successful marriage. And after 32 years of being with his wife, I'm sure he has a lot to share and you have a lot to learn just as I do from that relationship. But they also work together. So we talk about what that takes, living together, working together, partnering up together, and how to navigate that if you are working with your partner, but actually what you can learn from it from a day-to-day basis. We delve into leadership, servant leadership, his models of how he teaches um, CEOs and different organizations how to lead their people better, as well as other topics around education, singing at his wedding, and just so much more as you can imagine. Value-packed, fun-filled episode as always. So let's dive into it. Welcome to Everyday Leadership. Today I have the pleasure of talking to coach, facilitator, speaker, and um, dear friend, Mr. David McQueen. How are you doing, good sir? I am very well. I don't know whether to come in with a posh voice or with my <laughs> my usual <laughs> rugged voice, but a real pleasure to be here, Shaka. Really, real pleasure. Real pleasure. Uh, and today we're going to talk about leadership, and we're going to talk about that that realness, because anyone who knows David knows that he is not filtered in any way, shape, or form. He just nope. comes with it. And in yeah. fact, that's a good good place to start in this yeah. current space that um, you're navigating, especially talking about um, Black Lives Matter, for example, dealing with race and inclusion. How do you speak up and have those uncomfortable conversations and come at it from a place of love like you tend to do sometimes? I, I think part of it is because I've been speaking to this for years and about racial inequality as a whole. That we are in a moment where it's been a long overdue conversation around the inequality facing black people has meant that there's so much history or previous conversations behind this. So um, I'll speak truth to power, but I'll also get people to realize, look, saying Black Lives Matter doesn't exclude any other kind of life. It just means at this point in time, this is what we're focusing on because it hasn't been addressed. It's been skimmed over. No one really wants to talk about it. And so I'm I'm really willing to have very robust conversations with individuals about this and go, right, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Because if you're human and you're saying you're human, and you're talking about all these values and all this stuff, what does it actually look like to look like practically? So I will rough people up, but I will do them in love. You know, it's like um, to use, not that I do weight training, right, because you can see from my skinny body where they can't see, but you know what I mean. In order to build muscle, you've got to tear it. And sometimes that's what it is. We're developing a muscle, that personal development muscle, that awareness. Sometimes in order to build a muscle, you've got to tear it. And at the end of the day, when you're in the moment, you may not necessarily feel the pain. It's afterwards, a day afterwards, when you're like, wow, this is painful. But then you go and you have your T-shirt and you look for your T-shirt or your vest and you see that muscle, you go, okay, no pain, no gain. So I'm okay because I'm doing it in a respectful way, but I'm also doing it in a very direct way. And as you said, no filter, straight from concentrate. No concentrate, not from concentrate. Let me get my, let me get my metaphors right, yeah? Concentrate, is it? <laughs> not from concentrate, it's a straight, unfiltered, Yeah. <laughs> But that's not always easy to hear. And obviously you're going to get a lot of people who are going to be like, you can't, you can't say that. That's a bit too too direct. That's going to shake up people. And 
some people who might be scared actually that they might get cancelled for speaking up the way that you do. Do you ever get? Do you ever worry about that? No, no, because people. Because here's the thing, and we all know this because we're part of a community that has very robust conversations. All right, you can't get cancelled by people who aren't paying your bills. True that. So when I think about the work that I do, and when I think about the impact that I want to have, if a client cancels me, that's very different. But then I know that there are so many areas of the wider leadership conversation or inclusive leadership conversation that a lot of organizations are bereft of and that they want to have that conversation on. If they can't accept this part of what I bring to the table, then they're not going to be able to handle any other part of inclusive leadership. And yes, this one was probably the one that a lot of people have run away from. But if I'm coming in to talk to your senior leaders, your middle leaders, anybody, you know, that I don't care whether it's your titular leaders or whether it's people leading by position. If we can't have a robust and honest conversation where we set the boundaries, where we're agreeing this is about the bigger picture, where it's about the idea, not the individual. If we can't have that robust conversation, then you're not my client anyway. And I'm okay with that. So I'm not afraid of being cancelled. And yes, there will be people that will come with very robust arguments. And I'm okay to say I'm wrong. And I'm okay to have a bit of a difference around that. But I'm not okay Oh, I'm not afraid to speak truth to power in something that I truly and honestly believe in and and, and realize that it can benefit as a whole. So if people want to cancel me, I'm, I'm happy for them and their mum, but no, I'm, I'm going to go and say, my, I'm going to speak my truth anyway, straight up. So one of the areas that you talk about when it comes to leadership is servant leadership. Yes. What does that actually mean? <sighs> I'm not going to get cancelled here, but I'm just thinking about my words. So I use them widely, wisely. <laughs> <laughs> I'm of the opinion, and this is me, that leadership in and of itself should be inclusive. Because what you want to do is you want to take people on a journey with you. If you're in the middle of an operating theatre and someone's life is at stake, the individuals who are working with you in the operating theatre when you're the surgeon have got to be at the top of their game. You haven't got time for empathy or sweet words or motivational quotes or rainbows and unicorns. Is a life on that table, step up or step aside, all right? Very direct, still inclusive. If you're on a plane, and by the way, these are metaphors from Black Box Thinking by Matthew Syed. If you're on a plane and you're flying, there's a hierarchy. But there still might be a point where a co-pilot should say to a pilot, oh, we're running out of petrol, or something's wrong on the other side of the engine. Again, that's a bit more inclusive. If you are working in a community and you want to be able to get people to be really empowered about reducing trauma, reducing violence. You need individuals to be able to have a sense that you're going on that journey with them. And so inclusive leadership shows up in so many different ways. Sometimes it can be really directive where you've got to take people on a journey and you people have just got to follow you because they know you're the best person to do it. There are going to be other times where it's going to be a bit more collaborative where you kind of like, go, mm, well, if you think, you know, okay, whatever. And there are going to be other times where you just have to show that you are a servant and say that at the end of the day, I need you to be on board. I need you to recognize that we have a destination and we have a, a specific goal or vision that we're going to go. But rather than just tell you, I'm going to show you by how I serve you, how that's going to work. And so for me, servant leadership is, is that I'm here to serve you. And I know we have a goal or destination to be able to get to. But I want you to know that I'm here to serve you. Even though I'm going to be the one calling the shots and the buck stops with me, I'm here to serve you. And so in order to be able to serve you, I want to know that I'm going to empower you. I've hired you because you've got the skills and the talents to be able to do it. I'm here to serve you. And in turn, I need you to recognize that when I serve you, you need to serve the audience that we're working with as well. And that's how I see servant leadership. I know it's a long-winded way around my inclusive leadership model, but that's how I see servant leadership. How can I serve you to demonstrate to you that I'm doing this on behalf of us and on behalf of the people who we say that we're um, representing. So that's like a very growth mindset oriented kind of culture where one person's empowering the other person and it kind of goes through and goes all the way. Is that realistic? Based on your vast experience of doing this for the best part of the two decades? Yeah. It depends. It really just depends. A lot of it is driven by who's leading and, and what the culture is. So there are going to be some organizations. All right, okay. Straight up, <laughs> I get myself in trouble, but right, this is your podcast, and you can fight me on. So you know what I'm like. 
I won't do no public sector work. I can't do public sector work, okay? I've done some stuff in it, but I can't do it. You know why? I have real issues with the hierarchical nature of leadership in a lot of the governmental kind of stroke. Public. I can't do it. I'm not cut out for that. David McQueen is not like, cut out for but I'm gonna listen. <laughs> There'll be two bonfire nights in the calendar, right? <laughs> November the fifth and mine, okay? Because I just can't, I can't. I just no, it's not that I can't. The energy that I want to be able to expend, I want to be able to expend it on individuals. And my experience, and again, others go in there and they thrive, but my experience of working in that space is it's so hierarchical, it's so based on prestige, it's so based on this really warped sense of, oh, I don't even know what it is. Whereas when I work in the third sector and when I work in the private sector, there are different motives. Like third sector are very much, that's where you see servant leadership because they're like, we're charitable, social enterprise, what have you. We are serving our community, right? We'll make some profit, good, but we invest that back into the company because our primary concern is the clients that we're working with and we're going for. Get that. Private sector now is like, yeah, you've still got those people who are a bit hierarchical and who are a bit up there and whatever. But it's so tied to that bottom line that people know that, look, in order for this to be sustainable and in order for me to not get kicked out because they can replace me quickly, I need to make sure that I'm doing this stuff that's really sustainable and then goes to the bottom line. Whereas public sector, I don't, in my experience. And so I do believe it's realistic, but I also think it's dependent on the culture. I think it's dependent on the leadership styles that are available in that culture. And I also believe it's really critical, and this is this is what, I don't think we talk about this enough, but how people respond to a leadership style. That's, that's critical. In what sense? Because you can be, look, I could never work for somebody like Steve Jobs or Elon Musk. Not me. Mm-mm, 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 mm-mm. Someone's going to get knocked out. <laughs> Someone, someone, rest his rest soul, rest his soul, Steve Jobs. <laughs> Someone's going to get knocked out. Because you ain't coming in no room shouting at me telling me I've got to do something. Bro, you ain't driving home with four full tires at the end of that day because I'm coming for you and your car, all right? That's just me. I can't do that. But I have no problem with people being robust, but just speak to me as a human. Does that make sense? Mm. So you can be very direct. You know, I think I'm a very direct person, but I would also say that when I'm talking to people, they know that I'm doing stuff in love. I'm going, I'm here to serve you. I will do, I will do whatever I need to do to make sure that your job is and your your space here within in, in my sphere of influence is you're empowered. But I also think it's really important for you to recognize that um, I'm not going to do it and dehumanize you or belittle you. And some people like that. They like to be shouted at. They like to be told. You know, like, I I admire people who join the army. I really do. People who go and join the army and the navy, you know, I, I really do. And I understand, like, you know, I've got friends in America who've done it. And let's be honest, it's only because they didn't want to pay the full fee for the university. All right? But I know... <laughs> I know <laughs> <laughs> I know people are like, shouting at me and telling me I can't talk back to you. Go and run across the road there. Do 20 press-ups. Run over there. Yeah, are you mad? I, no, I can't do that. And I recognise that's not my style. So, you know, generally speaking, when I was employed, there's a lot of stuff that I did. I had some full-time and a couple of part-time gigs as well where I went in and I was like, I can't work for that person because I can't work to that leadership style. And I'm currently writing a book now around brave leadership. It's not a plug, I'm just telling you. Um, and but before I did that, I wanted to write a book called Leading Up. And leading up, and the point of leading up was to, to show people how do they respond to different leadership styles? How do you navigate? Because we all focus on leader, leader, leader. Let's go to the leader. Oh, blah, 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 blah. But what about the people being led? And how do they respond to that? How do I respond to the fact that you say to me, all right, I'm going to call you up at 7.30 in the morning. Okay, call me. I answer the phone. <laughs> you can call me. I sent you an email at 9 o'clock and you didn't respond. Yeah, because I was with my wife in bed. What were you doing? Sending emails. I'm happy for you, but I know where I was. How do you, when all these people who get these bosses and leaders who lead out of fear and lead out of this, making people kind of like feeling coerced to do stuff, how are you properly going to have a sustainable leadership relationship if you don't know, or that person that's being led doesn't know how to respond to them? Or how do you keep staff? If you know, I've seen companies where people have had high staff turnover, and yet they've still kept the same toxic person in place because they've hit a specific financial target. I'm like, but it costs you twice as much to recruit all those people you've lost. So you're actually losing money. 
in principle. And so for me, there is that, there is that, I hear what you're saying about realistic, but it does depend on the environment. It depends on the leader style and depends on how people respond to leaders as well. I think it's doable, but yeah. So on the back of that, is it the leader's responsibility to create a culture where people feel they can speak up if their leaders are jacked up like that? Or is it down to the individuals to speak up and be like, actually, you need to lead us differently because we don't respond to this? I think it's a combination of the two. But it will be, I would say, historically, and in my experience, it will be primarily driven by leaders creating that narrative for agency and for people to be able to speak. But then having set that tone, allowing individuals to then be able to raise up and say, well, look, maybe we disagree with what's actually going on. So I think we should start it, but I think it should be both. I think we should be able to create that space and then you have staff who will be like, okay, we need to be able to respond to this accordingly. Because there are so many, Shepa, there are so many organisations who would probably be around, be around today or who would probably be more profitable or agile under some very challenging circumstances, if talented people in the organization were allowed to challenge some of the values or lack of values or some of the decisions that people have made. Without a doubt, look at Enron. That company, people felt that it couldn't fail. Mm -hmm. They felt it was too big to fail. Look at um, uh, uh, Toys R Us. Toys R Us was still a profitable company before they shut it down. Do you know what they couldn't do, though? They couldn't service the debt because they loaded that thing with debt. They loaded it. People go, oh, Amazon crushed. But no, Amazon was debt. It was debt because they still had a massive customer database. But somebody somewhere decided, right, we're going to go and sell this to a big private equity or whatever firm. We're going to load it up with debt and then da 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 Misguided leadership. So for me, when you're in a space where people can go, well, what about? Or how about? That doesn't mean necessarily mean that you change your decision. But at least somebody's been able to raise that. And, and I think there's some sustainability around people being able to have a voice and, and have a sensible voice to challenge those. And not to, um, not to challenge to undermine, because there's, there's a very big difference. Some people think that if you challenge somebody, you're undermining their authority. I don't think so. I think it's more about how can I have a conversation with you um, and go, have you thought about, or what about this scenario, or what have you, and be okay with that. And the boss could go, right, I, I, I agree with you, or nah, because this is the decision that we've made and this is why we've done that. So, yeah, I think there's options. They start, start, with the, start with the senior leaders, um, but create a culture where that innovation or creativity or challenge to the decisions can be made within the, um, in a sensible way within the organisation. Interesting that you mentioned um, Enron and their values, because their, their values were respect, integrity, communication, and excellence. Rice. That's what they were looking at. There was no rice at home. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You look at how that company fell apart. It was down to the fact that people couldn't, they didn't have any respect for each other. They couldn't communicate because of the person at the top. And it speaks into like so many companies recently who have this in the model around inclusivity and diversity and they won loads of different awards. Yes. And then this last couple of months, we've seen a lot of people come out saying, doesn't matter what awards you're winning, your cultures are not inclusive. And it's a more been a lot of window dressing. So how do you how do you get to the crooks of what's really going on within a company? Not what they're showing online, what they're showing in the media, what their people are really dealing with. Right. So so let me let me let me share with you you know this, but I'll share with your listeners the, the model that I use around how I frame my leadership. So it's an acronym that I use called BRAVE. So bold, resilient, agile, visionary, and ethical. Okay? Bold, resilient, agile, visionary, and ethical. And I use that as a framework to leaders to go, you know, when you are making decisions, can you go along the line? And say that you've done that based on any one of these or all of these five. Is it bold? Have you been able to challenge individuals and have a really good reason behind that? Is it resilient? Are you able to make a decision that can withstand buffering or challenges from other individuals? Is it agile? Are you flexible enough to be able to um, to adapt, to change, to do things differently? Is it visionary? Are you doing it just for the quick win now, or are you looking for the bigger picture? And is it ethical? So is that sustainable? Have you done it with a sense of value, true value? Um, you know, 
what have you done in order to be able to do that? And I, and I always say, look, you know me, right? I've seen people go and pick up these awards for best race place to work. I'm like, really? <laughs> They're my client. That's not the best place to work for race. I know that. I don't know. And we're working on that. Or people are, oh, you know, we, we are the more diverse. And I'm like, sit down. Honestly, sit down. Stop running up to take awards when you know if I asked a couple of people in your company if that's the real truth, they wouldn't say. And it's the same thing happened with George Floyd. All these companies, including the Washington Redskins, right? Let's just deal with that, okay? The Washington Redskins go and put a poster on their website about we all stand in this together. Brother, your team's called the Redskins. Let's get that out of the way first. Secondly, you didn't want any of your guys to take the knee, and now, after it's gone global, you want to talk about your standing together. And I, I look at that and I go, who's keeping those leaders accountable? And, and, and how is there a culture where no one is able to challenge that? So I, I always say, if you really, really want to know if, if a company is living up to its values, just, you know, go and ask those individuals who aren't in a position of leadership. Go and ask the people who are being led, is this real? If people could anonymously be able to, you know, whether, I mean, you've got sites like Glassdoor and all the rest of it, and, you know, people can go and put their stuff there. But if people could be in a, in a job and honestly say what it is, that's when you'd find out if their values were real. Um, so for me, I think it's about, it's not about awards. The awards industry, it's a, it's a whole other conversation altogether, right? But it's, 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 it's a whole other podcast, right? But it's not about awards. It's about, it's about acting in integrity. What does integrity really mean to you? And, and, and being okay with the fact that you may not necessarily get everything right. But if you are going to say, this is us, our integrity, at least live it. At least live it. Speaking of living it, you, you've been married to your lovely wife to celebrated your, your silver anniversary this year. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. Been so together for what, 33 years? 32. 32. Mm-hmm. First question is, what's the, what's the secret? Just listen to everything she says and turn off. straight talk. Um, do you know what? Um, so there are a couple of things for me. I think a lot of married a lot of married couples don't talk about this, but I'm, I'm going to put it out there. We were lucky. We were lucky. The fact that we were able to find each other and have that kind of synchronization and have that weird sense of humor, that laughter, the way we see it, we were lucky. I'm just going to put that out there. Luck plays a role in it. And I know some people don't believe in luck, but that's just me. All right, we were lucky. Secondly, thing for me is that we're friends. You know, we found out that we had a really strong friendship that took knocks, still has taken knocks. Um, but the foundation and the core of that friendship has has been incredible for us. And then uh, lastly, it was our pastor at the time who, when he married us, he said to us, divorce is not an option. Now that probably freaks a lot of people out because I know he would have told that to some other people who got married around the same time as us who did divorce. But he said, divorce is not an option. And he said, if it is an option, don't get married. What? He said, if divorce is an option, don't get married. I was like, well, we're only like 25. What kind of pressure you put a man under? And he said, and I'm saying that to you to make sure that what you do is every day you put effort and energy into making sure that the relationship that you have works. And it's more than romance. And that, for me, was pivotal. I can't explain. I, the luck and friendship bit, I can go, it's cool. But that option where we were told that we've got to work every day on what we have, that's what's kept it. And so every day we work on it. Every take every day is new. Take nothing for granted. There's some people who come like, you know, both of our daughters, we, we're, it's, at the time of this recording, we are empty nesters because both of our daughters are outside of the house. Sitting down there yesterday, and we're like, it's just the two of us. It's starting off as a tumor, so why should we be so surprised? But then, you know, adjusting to that and adjusting to a quieter house with no music and no fighting, no kids over the dishes and the clothes and who's vacuuming the floor and all the rest of it. It's just the two of us. But it's a reinforcement of that every day. It's a new day. And, and, I, and I love that. And I love that. And I think that's a key thing for any kind of friendship, whether it's a married couple or whatever. Just every day. Don't take anything for granted and work at it every day. But yours is a bit unique because you actually work together. Yes. So how does that, how do you get that balance between work and business? 
and who leads on what. Can I just say to you, people now, right? Working together ain't easy now. It ain't easy. I'm straight up. It ain't easy. And, and a couple of the things that we learned along the way. So I'm a big picture guy. I've got the ideas. I've got the programs, all that kind of stuff. That's my default, my, my dominant area. My missus is a detailed person. She's like, dot the I's and cross the T's. And we had to learn um. how to navigate that. We had to learn how to navigate that. And that wasn't easy. Um, but we had to learn. And there were times where we literally clashed heads because we had those differences where those boundaries have crossed. But then the other thing that made a big difference for us is, was to, although we worked together, we'd have, we'd work with, or we have, you know, we have an amazing PA, Danisa's best friend. And, and what she's able to do is kind of like have that divide. So you go and do that, David. You go and do that, Madden. Okay, you kind of like combine together. But that's what you do. And having that one or other person that's in there, that so it doesn't, it's not just like an extension of your marriage. It's just business. Um, really helps. And and again, you know, like everything else, we've said, no matter what happens, if the business fails, which touch wood it won't, if our marriage fails, which touch wood it won't, at the end of the day, the one thing we always want to do is make sure that we protect our friendship. So because our friendship is so pivotal, although it's not an easy thing to do, um, we have been able to to balance it. And in terms of in terms of leadership, it, it depends. It's situational. So there are going to be some things that um, my wife leads on. Uh, Madeline is her name for your listeners. And there are going to be some things that I lead on. Um, not, I'm not really about the title, who's CEO, who's MD, or that kind of thing. Like for me, if I have my, if, I'll be honest with you, if I have my own way, I don't want to have no title in my company at all. I don't want to be called CEO. I just want to be the silent shareholder in the back. And when trouble comes, go and sue the CEO and any other person. <laughs> I'll sit in the back, I'll take my shares and I'll be gone, okay? I'm not hung up about all them titles. People are oh, CEO fan. I don't care. We're, we're co-founders of the business. And the leadership does come up. You know, sometimes we have to play to the strengths that we have. And where leadership shows up most is when you recognize what your strength is and what it is that you do in that space and how you represent. So that's for me where the, the leadership that comes in, in running the business together. You talked about being intentional on that friendship. After 33 years, how do you keep on being intentional? Because you've had you've got two lovely daughters just left the nest now. You're working. How do you make that time and keep that flame alive throughout that, that period? Because that's something that a lot of people find hard to do. I've never grown up. Let <laughs> me make that flame now, right? <laughs> I've never grown up. I, honestly, I've never grown up. I, I have, in that I've got the responsibilities, but I've, my mind, I'm still 19. My legs tell me something totally different and my back, right? But in my mind, I'm still 19. And what I mean by that is there's, there's a thirst, there's an, you know, I'm, uh, it, you know, turned 51 this year, but there's still an appetite for new adventures. This year has been hella weird for the majority of people and, 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 and you know, stuff around me. But we've been really fortunate in that we've uh, just really been able to um, still look at it with fresh eyes, still have our doubts, still have our uncertainties. But I love the fact that I can still make her blush. I love the fact that I can compliment her and she still gets embarrassed. I love the fact that she can touch me and I can be angry, I can be volcanic. And that woman can touch me and can reduce me to a molehill, all right? <laughs> from, from volcano to molehill. I love the fact that there are certain things that just, just a little, a little things that can make such a difference. And you get reminded of that every day. And some days, look, you know, it's not going to be, again, I said, it's not going to be all rainbows, unicorns and skittles. Some days it's going to be a little bit tense. But there's a bigger picture around the friendship. And, and I'm also conscious as well, and I make no lie about that that there are a lot of individuals who aspire to have a relationship like us across the board. Um, without apology, I know there are a lot of younger black couples who are really inspired by seeing a black couple like ourselves as well. 
Um, and so bearing that in mind in terms of the bigger picture, even more so you want to demonstrate to people, this stuff can work. Forget all the kind of narratives and stories that you hear where people just come to a relationship and then they give up and it's all done or they start a business and they just break up or they don't think they're really good at parents. What does it actually look like to go, every day, let me get up and try and do this really good. Let me try and be a good parent. Let me try and be a good friend. Let me try and be a, a better entrepreneur than I was yesterday. Or even if I'm not, let me just chill, reflect on what I've learned and what can I do again? You know, what are these things that we uh, take note of, that we journal, that we reflect on, that we um, uh, use as examples of, of leadership? And I realize, you know, for me, the big thing here is, is that, uh, and I know I've shared it with you privately, but in the open now, you know, but part of my bigger vision is that I always, I want to be able to demonstrate leadership in all areas of my life. Um, it might not be the leadership that everybody, has, you know, kind of like likes. My direct approach to some people might be a bit jarring. I might put some people off. But I still want to be able to demonstrate my authentic, vulnerable self, warts and all, and say sorry where I've messed up, but own it where I've done well. And and having that energy every day, Chope, man, that's, that's a zest for life. That's why I don't think I'll ever stop working. That's why I don't think I'll ever retire. This whole concept of retiring, I don't think it's ever going to work for me. I might slow down. I don't think I'll ever retire because I'm always going to be wanting to inspire a generation of leaders as to how they can run, how they can be a leader in the home, how they can be leaders' friends, how they can be a leader in business, and how they can be a leader in the community. That will always be with me. Have you always been a vulnerable person? Oh, yeah. Or did you have to learn how to be vulnerable? No, I've always been that. It's just that I didn't show it before. What made you show it? Because I realised there were going to be people that could learn from it. So, so I, I think I was... I, I think I know I was brought up in a um, environment where boys don't cry. All right. Um, so you know, in football, someone could come when I was younger. Someone could come and kick me in my leg. All right, and, and it hurt. And I want to knock out all thirty-two of your teeth in one go, or whatever many teeth you got. Right, I want to knock them all out. And I want to cry. Big man, don't cry. Go play the game. Bite your lip. Okay, and then I go and find a tree to hide behind, and I cry. <laughs> okay, and then I got to a point where I just I don't care. I'm gonna cry if it hurts me. I'm crying. What are you crying for? My foot hurts. My foot hurts. I'm in pain. I'm gonna go and score a goal, and I'm gonna go get revenge. But I'm letting you know that it hurts. And then there were other situations where I realised that certain people just didn't haven't been taught how to express emotion because they were told that it wasn't a man. You weren't a true man or what have you and then I started to learn how to counsel and coach and mentor and guide people and, and I constantly saw this theme of people holding in their emotions and that stuff driving anxiety depression people committing suicide because they never had an outlet and so for me the vulnerability I tell people, you know, you and I are part of a, a, a private men's group, and you know that I tell people when I mess up, as well as the, the pains that I go through. Because I'm like, I'm older than a, um, a lot of the other men there, but I want to be able to say to it, it's okay. You don't have to do it. If you give yourself a bit of permission, that takes me. You know, when I, personal story, my dad got COVID earlier in the year, was out for 11 weeks. Um, I was in the, in the hospital for 11 weeks, sorry, wrong phrase there. Um, that was so painful. Um, but I was able to share it with my group of men and say, look, this is what I'm going through. It's hurting me. Don't know what's going to happen. Really nervous, really scared. And just shared that. Just shared that. Because I didn't want people to think I was just being strong. Because it wasn't. I wasn't being just strong. There was issues that I had there. You know, I wasn't afraid to tell my men friends that I cried my eyes out because I thought I was going to lose my dad. And not only was it cathartic for me, but then I realised it was cathartic for others as well. Because even if they weren't going to represent and behave in the same way that I did, at least they had an option. Whereas for me, when we aren't vulnerable and when we don't talk about this stuff, it's like we shut down what that option is. I'm like, at least it's there. You've got an option. And let's work with the options. So, yeah, it, it took a while. 
but yeah, I, I think it's bigger than me, so I'm okay being vulnerable. You think it's made? That's one of the things that's made a difference in your marriage as well. The fact that you are you are open, you have that safety to be open at home with Madeline. Yeah. Oh yeah, for real. And I, I you know, my both of us are never afraid to cry in front of each other. Um, I think it takes me longer than my wife and girls to cry. Because somewhere in my mind, I still have this, I need to be strong. Actually, actually, quick joke, I'll give you a parallel, right? So when we got married, right, um, my wife's walking up the aisle to this organ music. The organ music stops. She's looking at, like, what the hell's happened? And then my mate gets on the piano and starts playing, and I start singing a song to her going down the aisle. So I'm literally singing to her, serenading her as she's going up the aisle, all right? Well, of course I can sing. What's wrong with you? It's because I'm just showing it now. I used to sing all the time. I used to be in a six-part a cappella group, you know. Do praise and worship, led praise and worship, did choirs. Don't play with me, no show, but you're not ready for me yet. Don't worry. Just don't worry about that. Anyway, so, of course I could, I would never go and sing to my wife if I couldn't sing. This is not X Factor, bro. This is, this is real life. Listen, you got confidence in yourself. Yeah, listen. <laughs> Anybody who can't sing and sings that I went, I'm going to tell them you're rubbish. I'll straight up, I'll tell you in your face, I don't care. Your song, your song was trash and you're trash. Just go and get married. So anyway, I'm singing to her now. So the world must know, all my friends must know that I love you. Singing to her, she realizes what happened. She starts to cry. I'm holding it down, bro, because I can't stand to see her cry. Holding it down. And the reason why I'm holding it down, because I know when I start to cry, it's, it's, it's mess. It's bogeys, teardrops, everything gets messy. It's quivering lip. I meet her and I finish my song now. She stops crying and I start, she starts laughing, right? Because at this point, she knows it's going to go. Me, snot's coming down, my eye, everything. Because I know if I don't contain it, I'm gone. And somebody in my mind says, right, if my girls, if my wife is crying, I've got to kind of like hold it down for that and then it's my turn to cry. You know, my my wife's uh, mum passed away a number of years ago. And it was really, really painful to see how, to, you know, to go through it as an old woman. And um, I didn't cry in front of my wife until after my mother-in-law passed away, even though I wanted to before. And because I just wanted to, in my head, I just wanted to just hold it together. And then when it was my turn, I just, like, went to a field. Joy went for a drive, went to a field. And I just did primal. Anybody who was walking past me on that day would have heard some man wailing from all the ancestors, from the guts, from Mufasa and any other kind of lion king that was in there. It just came from there. Um, and I still needed to cry. It's just that I just didn't need to, I just didn't want to do it at that point in time. But part of, of what I do believe has made us sustainable, and, and, and I think it probably is a good example for my daughters as well, is that even though I don't cry often, when I do cry, I'm not afraid to cry in front of them. Speaking of um, your wonderful daughters, you once said education is designed for the poor or disenfranchised. It's not designed for the poor or disenfranchised. As a father, education about those those words. Both your kids have gone through education. We talked about them going to private school, that kind of stuff. Was that why you sent them to private school to give them a different upbringing? Yes. Or would you even say now in this day and age, is even education even worth it because of yeah. entrepreneurship, for example, or technology available to us, all that kind of stuff? Yeah. So I'm going to paraphrase it slightly and say schooling. If I can say schooling rather than education, because education is why. So let me go with schooling. Yeah. And I still believe that schooling is not designed for the poor. It's not a disadvantage. It's not. And But I was really fortunate. Why why did you say that though? Because it's not. It's not. If you want to okay. I sent my daughters to private school because I wanted to give them an economic advantage. The education is no different or better. If, if anything, it's just on par with state schools. Go and have if you ever go and have a look at the data, okay? A lot of students who have gone into really top universities from state schools, they tend to do better in the end than those who came from private schools. What private schools have is a network. So while you're busting your ass to get a result done and, and, and trying to get a little internship, the private school kid knows that they can walk straight into any company that's related to the dad and the dad's network. That's how it's always worked. 
I wanted my kids to go, not because I wasn't give, trying to give them a better education. I wanted to put them in a space to just see how the world could be very different than what they were used to. They had individuals coming into that school from industry every week. They were told from a young age that you're going to be born leaders and you're going to take over the world and then saw people who exemplified that. And not just, you know, I wasn't, I told them, don't watch the car, right? Because there's some people who are front with a car and they're one month away from being bankrupt. You know, there were people who my daughters went and they saw in school and then after a term or after a year, they weren't there anymore. Okay? Because the parents couldn't either afford it or for, for whatever reason. And we had to work damn hard. I make no, you know, the first child, we, we, we scraped graves and fought while building a business to do that. Second one was a bit more straightforward. We were, you know, balling a bit more around, around that time. But the truth is, is what they also do is they tell, and especially when they know students who are working well. Both of my daughters were told by teachers, they told me and my dad, get your daughter or get your daughters to read around the subject. That's what they all said. Don't just depend on the textbook, read around the subject. So my daughters would get into conversations with me and my wife around philosophy and religion and the state of the world and economics and finance. So all this stuff was wider than just the subject. But they were in environments where that was truly, truly fostered. The fact is, is that in a, in a, um, if I was to go back and send my daughters to a state school, I'd want them to go to a state school that had the same small sizes of class, would have the same kind of individuals who come in to talk to them about what life looks like beyond school, because a lot of teachers don't know what life looks like beyond school. Um, and that would be my conditions. Otherwise, I'd pay the money and send them to private. And what actually happens is you, if you go and have a look at the historic, historic historicity of education. Be honest with me. What is the purpose of a multiple choice question? As an adult, as an adult, right, we're both adults now with our own children and running business. What is the point of a multiple choice question? It's kind of the same as, same as an open book exam, is it? What, what's the point? And, and for me, if we, if we were really, if, if, okay, if I had the choice to really design the schooling system from the ground up, I would make the curriculum project-based. And I would design it more like how the homeschooling curriculum is done. So instead of somebody just learning about algebra and trigonometry and what have you, they've got to go shopping. They've got to work out the bill without a calculator. They've got to go to DIY. They've got to tell me the measurements of the, the stuff that we're going to go and buy and the circumference and radius and why it wouldn't work and why it wouldn't fit into the kitchen. They've got to tell me about the, the journey that we're taking and what the cost to the environment as well as to the car will be. And they've got to tell me about geography. They've got to tell me about all these things that will make it immersive so that <clears throat> so they don't see learning as something that ends when they finish school. It's about how do I apply this to the world around me? That's what I would do around project learning. Around the time that child hits about 16, and probably not before, then I go, okay, you know what? If you want to go and specialize in something, you know, what are the kind of areas that you want to specialize in? And somebody goes, oh, you know, I want to be, I want to work in healthcare. All right, let's go and see you work in healthcare. You don't have to make a decision about what you're going to do until you're about 18. Because no one knows. Let's just, let's just see what you're going to do. And constantly doing that project so that people can have a sense of being a citizen and learning and learning is something that they want to do for the rest of their life, as opposed to going to school to pass an exam. I'm proud of my kids because they got amazing results, right? Good work ethic. My eldest one is smart by default. My second, uh, my youngest one is smart, but is a hard worker. So she's like banged out A-stars and A's in her GCSEs. And she, came, she got A-star, AA in her A-levels. All of us are looking at her like, okay, you're, going on? You're, you're the clever one then. But the, the truth is, is that more than that, is that thirst that she has for learning around life. And... And for me, because of the way that society has historically rewarded the rich, the privileged, and the what have you, to being able to go to those places, to go to those schools and what have you, where you can pay or you can have the advantage, the reality is the majority of the ones that are left behind are only being put in there to pass exams and to behave. behave you know the issues around behavior, Chauvet? You You trying to tell me that you want a 14-year-old to suppress their teenage years for 40 hours a week in a school. They can't colour their hair. They can't pierce their nose. They can't flirt. They've got to walk down a corridor silently. They've got to... Are you mad? 
kids will find every single way to try and subvert that. And the ones who don't, they just end up becoming these individuals who you and I end up having to coach later on because they repress their stuff. And we're having to unravel all that kid stuff when we're doing leadership coaching. For me, I'll scrap uniform. I'll scrap uniform. Like go in your tatty jeans. Right? I understand it. I understand some people are like, it's a leveler, whatever the hell that means. Look, you say it's a leveler, but if somebody's rocking into school with a pair of Nike Jordans and you're coming in with a pair of shoe zone four stripe, that, that school uniform isn't making a difference. And so for me, I would, I would flip it out. And I still think it doesn't favor the poor. But then that's why I, I love social media. That's why, uh, although it has its issues, that's why I love it because it's, it allows a lot of other people who won't get access to certain things to see things. They can see, you know, whether it's a motivational video here or, or, or inspirational kind of like content about thinking differently. You know, somebody can go online to YouTube now and learn about mental models from Charlie Munger or Warren Buffett. That's amazing from your phone. For me, that's incredible. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I think there is. I think there's a lot to be said about um, about rethinking it. And if we really, if we really want to be honest, go and have a. You know, I know they they always get put up as the the, the model country, but go and have a look at Finland. They let their kids play until they're about seven. Seven, we're here wondering about sets and private tutoring and kids getting stressed. Seven, you go and play. Just go and play. Totally. You learn this at first, and then you know, and then when you do get in. It's no pressure. I wouldn't even give kids homework. That's happened to that curiosity, isn't it? Just seeing... Nope. Learn what you're going to learn in school. Then if you want to go and discover some stuff outside of it, go and do that. I won't give you any homework. At all. I'd rather elongate the day and give you nine till four and include that kind of learning in the day. And then go home and play. And chill. What are you homework for? There's a teacher in New York a couple of weeks ago who did that. She's like, she's getting a lot of flack online. She's like, what am I giving my kids homework for? They've worked hard in school. They're going home. I know some of them have got work and they're looking after their families. Some of them come from the fire. But she's like, I'm not, I'm not giving no one the homework. And some people are like, I support. Some people are like, nope, you should get this. You should get homework all the time. So, What homework do you take home as an adult? It's interesting. It's part of your learning. That's part of learning nothing. You take, you take work home with you. Right? <laughs> and, even, and even that from <laughs> like, okay? Because the truth is, six to eight hours of a day is when we're productive. Anything over that, we're just not productive. What are we doing? All these people working 14 hour days for what? Your brain dead from six. So you'll be in a zombie for eight. Why would, why, we're so used to it, but why would you? Why not allow them, if they want to, go and pick up a book and explore the world differently, then fine. Or, or what we do is we flip it around. We say to young kids, right, when you go away, I want you to go away and I want you to study this. I want you to understand what you understand about societies and what have you and then we come back into school and let's discuss it and let's break it down but you go and do it i trust you enough go and then we'll talk about it tomorrow you got the resources to do it why not the truth is there's a lot of kids having to do this now because of the pandemic because they can't go to school in some spaces structured lessons no let them go and learn oh kids are going to miss out and growing up why who says that there's been people who've been homeschooling and doing this kind of way of education for years. But, and again, this is why I come back to my main point. It favours those individuals who are more wealthy to get a, a, a group of servile, non-thinking individuals to come in and just do the simple labour that they want and then they just benefit from the top. Has ever been thus. That's my thinking anyway. You mentioned hard, hard work, especially with your second daughter. We grew up in this moniker, and uh, especially in the black culture, by working twice as hard, which you've talked about in the past. How do you, what would your advice be to parents around working hard versus working smart? Ooh. <laughs> you sure you've got enough time for this? <laughs> um, <laughs> so here's how I, here's how I di- distinguish the two. So hard work for me is being able to go, I've got a task, I'm going to commit to the task, I'm going to think of my... Um, uh, using my intellect or my creativity or my innovation, and I'm going to say, right, I'm going to dedicate myself to doing this an hour, and I'm going to do it for an hour. That's hard work. That's putting the grind in and doing it. For me, the smart part is around how do I approach this in a different way? How do I make better decisions? How do I solve stuff better? How do I think laterally? How do I have a bit more critical thinking? 
that for me is a, the combination that there's the holy grail. You take that moment where you go, right, I'm going to do the work and I'm going to put in my energy, I'm going to do my craft. You know, if you were a carpenter, you know that hard work is being able to go, right, I'm going to go and I'm going to carve this fantastic bit of work. The smart work, the smart part will be, okay, what am I duplicating here that takes away from the essence of what it is? Do I need a better lathe? Do I need a better plane? Do I need to think about how I'm going to treat this slightly differently? How can I be, how can I do this in a different way? And it's that combination for me that makes sense. A lot of parents think that just putting a kid in a room for three, four hours, making them work is hard work. Very hard work. Very hard work. We, we, we turn them into robots. What does it mean? And that's why I'm saying I'd rather have a, I'd rather have students work or go to school from okay, let me give you a different let me give you a different angle on this, all right? Because this is why it's like waking up a bit, all right? In state schools, you're usually talking about students going in from nine, let's just say nine in the morning it starts. We say eight thirty, eight thirty nine, three o'clock, three thirty, day done, go home, do your homework. In private schools, they start at eight thirty nine and finish at five. And when they finish at five, they've done their sports. So they're doing all their sports within the school day. They have their free moments where they're going to go and do a little bit of homework or change or what have you or, or, or what have you. And they do that stuff in the day. Yes, without a shadow of a doubt, there's still some work that a lot of students will do afterwards. But imagine if you've got that day stacked with so much activity. Well, first and foremost, it'd be brilliant for the economy if we all finished at five. Kids and parents. Okay, because parents can go work a full day, do whatever they're going to do. But there is something about time management in that whole curriculum where you've got to think all right when i'm not in a class what am i doing how am i going to be able to manage this differently where can i go and read and expand my mind rather than just going from lesson to lesson to lesson to lesson boom go home where's that moment where i can have that free where i can sit down i can think i can do a little bit of homework and have a conversation and and i love to be able to challenge those notions where people think this is the only way for it to be done and when I was in education, I used to be up against these people all the time who just want behavior is the one thing. Just reinforcing that whole nonsense. And, you know, and, you, and, and, and if you think about it, the individuals who get kicked out of schools, most likely, when we divide it down into race and class, it turns up being black Caribbean boys, white working class boys, Bengali boys, black African boys, what have you. All those who don't fit that mold. So for me, I would, I, I, I definitely will say to parents, when you have the opportunity, um, have a conversation with your children about their learning. You know, and what did they learn today? What can you teach me today? Go for a walk. Let them explain to you about what they learned about the Renaissance or about history or about geography or about how by using this certain mass formula, you know, quadratic equations, minus B plus or minus the square root of uh, uh, Minus B plus or minus square root of B squared minus 4AC all over 2A. What does that mean? Well, it, the, the quadratic equation is not just about how you answer this question, but, that, but if you look at the suspension bridge and if you look at the arc, that's the quadratic equation or the curve in the light bulb of the actual car that allows you to be able to tilt or do the beam. That's a quadratic. That's bringing, that's bringing the subject to life. How much more richer is it to be able to have conversations about that? And it's like, you know, like a lot of people have said, you know, well, you know, in schools, they should have entrepreneurship or personal finance. I don't think you should. I think that should just be done at home. Because if you don't like your maths teacher or PE teacher or English teacher, who's the guarantee that you're going to like somebody teaching you about personal finance or entrepreneurship? And especially if it's coming from people who haven't had that experience. So I would, I would say to parents, yeah, hard work's good, but be involved. Ask those questions. Get them to walk with you and talk with you. Put the textbook down. Let them explain to you. Ask them questions. Get challenged by them. See how you can get involved in it. As opposed to, right, you've done three hours now. You should have been up in the room. No TV, no PS2 or whatever the heck it is. Where are we, where are we at now five. with the PS games? Five? Five, yeah. five? Six or five. No PS5, right? Five or six. I don't play them, so I don't know. But none of that. Rather than it being arbitrary like that, just go, look, how can we help you with your learning? Simple as. It's actually very simple, leadership. I honestly believe that leadership across the board is simple. I just think that people are just resistant. Ooh, ooh, ooh! I feel like David's trying to draw it in, and I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not gonna buy it. I'm not gonna buy it. Servant leadership. How can I serve you? How can I help you? Boom. Simple as. 
How can I make your life better? I know what your skills are. I know what your talents are. I know what we're looking towards to get into this, as this organization. How can I make it better? Easy. People don't want to do it, but it doesn't mean that it's not easy. Yeah, but it takes someone to to see those things, see those skills, see those talents, understand all of that, totally. which is what a lot of people need help doing before they get to that next level. But let me, say, let me, let me fall back again. All right. Fall back again. <laughs> before we wrap up, um, yeah. more quick questions. What are your three guiding principles or values? Self-love. Self-love first. Got to love yourself first. Before you can, you cannot, you cannot feed into others unless you feed into yourself. Self-love is so important. It's got to be a sense of that worthiness, esteem, who you are, what you bring to the world. Self-love also involves forgiveness. So you're not beating yourself up over things. Um, you're not being too hard on yourself. You're not overwhelming yourself with imposter syndrome because you realize you've got something of value that you bring to the world. Self-love, always in the self-love. That's my first one. Second one is integrity, which kind of like leads from it. Um, and, and, and that kind of like touches with honesty and, and being real. That integrity is, 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 is doing things with a really good intent. And, um, for me, the, 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 the good thing about integrity is that others will tell you and they will be, they will want you, they will know when you're being integrity. And if, and if the mask drops, people will see it as well. But it's, it's, it's harder to, to wear a mask than it is to be your full self. Hard. It takes so much more energy. I, I you know, I, <laughs> I have a relative who's a fabulist. I'm not going to say who he is, right? but he's a fabulist. What I mean by that, you can tell some porkies. And I'm like, I'm like, how do you find the energy to remember that stuff? I'm like, I don't know how you do that. How do you, because first of all, that was not the story that you told me last time. So there's the, how do you do that? Just act in integrity. And then the third one for me is first one self-love, second one integrity, third one for me is legacy. Um, and in in living with that sense of self-love and, and integrity, what is it that I want to leave for those whose lives I have, have, have impacted? Whether it's my direct family, whether it's my wife and my children, whether it's my slightly extended siblings and my nephews and nieces and all the rest of it, and then and then friends in the wider circle. What's that legacy? What do I want to leave? Because my legacy will last longer than I will. So what do you want your legacy to be? In all honesty, if I was to really pinpoint on my legacy, and I think it comes back to the core of what we're talking about here, is to demonstrate, warts and all, what good leadership looks like. For self, for your family, for organisations and for your community. What does good leadership look like? That's my legacy. What are your favourite three books and why? Fictional, personal, or just full stop? Okay. Um, the book I always recommend to anybody who I mentor is The Magic of Thinking Big. Love that book. Absolutely love it. Absolutely love that book. I'm going to give you another book, and you're going to laugh at me when I tell you this. You're going to laugh. I know you're going to laugh at me, all right? But one of my other favorite books for me, and it's not a book, it's a collection of books, is the Bible, all right? <laughs> And Chopin just losing his mind here. Right? I'm I'm an agnostic, okay? I'm no longer, <laughs> no longer religious. But I think, I honestly will say, as a collection of books, okay, and however you approach it, the Bible has got to be, and, and I, let me go with the King James Version, right? There are other versions, but let me just go with the King, King James. Let me go with the authorized version. Let me go old school now, 1611. That is one of the greatest pieces of literature that changed the way that people communicated. And it was around the time of Shakespearean language and all the rest of it, blah, blah, King James. I really admire the fact that for a lot of individuals who I know in my life personally, who have a degree of where they don't have a sense of literacy, what the Bible has done is, is it's provided them with a language and a tone and a voice that I think very few other books have been able to do, like within terms of reach. Part of the religious side of it as well, but Proverbs. Um, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, uh, uh, the Hebrew parallelism, the, hu the Hebrew parallelism or poetry of the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, incredible. You read Genesis one and two, 
the way that reads as a poem when you really get into it, incredible. The the, the phrasing used in, in, in the Greek and Aramaic in the New Testament, amazing. People may not necessarily like Paul and some of the letters that he wrote or what have you, but there's some amazing, the way it's structured and the way that the 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 um the reasoning on it, absolutely incredible. So yeah, definitely one of my own, and not just for me, um, but for the impact it's had on the wider world. I'll tell you what book I really do like. Think and Grow Rich, a black choice. Okay. Because again, what I love about Think and Grow Rich with Napoleon Hill, he had an opportunity to really tell people about their mindset and about wealth, and not just about the physical wealth, but just what can be redone. As you can see, there's two books about mind in there, so you kind of like see my theme. But he wanted to be able to, um, in his time, and was quite revolutionary, he wanted to be able to take that same tome and give it to individuals who had come out of slavery or to give them as an opportunity to be able to build their own capacity. And he couldn't do it, and he approached um, a guy called uh, Kimbo, I think his surname is. And he basically took that same book, Think and Grow Rich, but a black choice and being able to develop it. And for me, specifically coming from a racial group that has suffered inequality in, in, in Western countries around access to finance, redlining, and various discriminations and what have you, which we won't go into, to have a book in your hand that speaks to your soul about the community and how you can create wealth generation. And by creating wealth generation, you can reduce things like poverty, illness, um, improve mental well-being, um, being able to provide not only for the first generation, but the generation and generations that come after. Absolutely incredible. And I absolutely love that book. So yeah, it's my three. Magical Thinking Big by David Schwartz. The Bible by the 66 chapters and all the writers who are in there. And Chope still can't believe I've said that. And, um, and the third one, um, uh, Think and Grow Rich, um, a black choice. And the final question would be, what is the biggest lesson Madeline has taught you? What's the biggest lesson that Madeline has taught me? Don't be afraid of success. She knows that I'm afraid not to fail. But what she taught me, and that's the biggest thing, is don't be afraid of success. You want me to expand it though, don't you? So up until about 11 years ago, I was always afraid of being wealthy and having money because I felt it was wasteful. Um, there was a narrative that was in my head all the time of um, the, the love of money is the root of all evil, back on my mind. Um, and even though I stepped away from organized religion, it was still something that was quite prominent in my head. Um, I was never afraid of failure because I was just like, you know what? I said to my missus, me and, me and you could sleep in a park bench or a tent together. As long as I got you, I'm good. So failure in that extent is nothing that I don't, I don't care about. It. If I didn't have any money and we were literally just living homeless, I could do that with my wife. I'm not encouraging that kind of thinking, but I could do that. Whereas on the flip side, success and being in that, you know, things like fame, you've probably heard me say this before, I don't like fame. I don't like all that kind of stuff. I just want to be able to be able to do stuff and, and be able to, to bless people accordingly. And, and, my, and my missus said to me something really powerful. She said, you know, one of the things about success is that the, being successful because of your values and the integrity that you have, it will allow you to reach more people because, yes, there are going to be people that will pay you, but there are going to be other people that you will reach out to and touch and lives. And, you know, I do my mentoring and I do my support and what have you. And that's free in comparison to individuals who I will charge for coaching and all the other consultancy and advisory work that I do. And um, and she taught me that I shouldn't be afraid of it. She taught me to step into it. And she said, you know, you cannot be a complete coach and advisor telling people to step into that stuff unless you learn how to be able to do it yourself. And that was huge. That shifted so many needles. And it's con and 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 it's a, it's a work in progress. I'm still having to undo some of that messaging that kind of would stop me from. You know, a couple of friends said, by rights, you should be a multimillionaire by now. And they're right. Absolutely right. Um, and, and even though I can use the excuses like, oh, I'm not motivated by money. They were very right. And, and part of that learning was unlearning was that, you know, I know that when I leave all being well, that I have good health and a longer life. When I do leave this planet, I believe that I'll be leaving my children and their children um, in a state that will be multimillionaire. And I make no bones and apology about that. And, and a lot of it, I will accredit to my wife being able to say to me, step into your success. That is a powerful note to end on. And 
for those of you who don't know, Uncle David, as is known in the community, has been doing this from way back as, as a youth worker with like Muslim Generation to so many other things that he does in the community. And he just talked about as a mentor, a coach, friend, advisor, uncle, father, in so many aspects, he really does help in the community. And I just want to say thank you for everything that you do. And one of the pieces of advice, that before you go into a meeting, don't talk to David. Because he got me laughing last week. I almost got me in trouble for it. <laughs> before, right? before I went into certain. <laughs> now, on the real girl, it's been an absolute pleasure just sitting down with you, just learning a bit more about you and from a different perspective as well. So I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and I'm. it's a privilege for me to be able to have you stand on my shoulders. Just putting that out there. Privilege. And I know you'll go further than me. And it's a privilege because I know where you are in your journey. I know where you're going. And being able to share this and be part of this platform, it's a privilege and honour for me to serve you and have you stand on my shoulders because I know you'll do even greater. Appreciate that. It's Everyday Leadership. Don't forget, I have show notes on my website, everydayleadership.buzzsprout.com. So check that out. And if you've enjoyed today's episode, make sure you subscribe and tell someone else. Appreciate your support. I'll see you next time. This is Everyday Leadership.